Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Before we get started today, I want to remind you that Strong Towns is hosting our national gathering this May in Charlotte. May 30th and 31st, there's going to be hundreds of Strong Towns advocates gathering in Charlotte ahead of the Congress for the New Urbanism to meet. We've got Oh my gosh, we've got get-togethers, we've got parties, we've got sessions, we've got sharing of information, we've got discussions, we've got Majora Carter doing our keynote. This is going to be a massive event. It's going to be crazy. If, if you are into Strong Towns, if you want to be into Strong Towns, or if you have someone who you want to get into Strong Towns, plan to be in Charlotte at the end of May. You can go to our website right now, strongtowns.org. Go to the events tab and you will see national gathering there. Get signed up soon. And I know people say this all the time, like there's limited seating. We have a cap. We have a hard cap on the number of tickets that we can sell. We are about a fourth of the way there right now. And I'm a little bit nervous because I know there's a lot of you that are planning to attend, that want to be there, that are waiting. And I don't want you to miss out on getting your tickets. So go to strongtowns.org, click on events. You're going to see national gathering, get signed up there. And before we're done, I want to say thank you. One of the sessions that we're going to have at the national gathering is about incremental developers. In fact, we have a whole track about incremental development. And Monty Anderson and his group at Options Real Estate have sponsored, been one of our sponsors of this national gathering. If you don't know Monty, come to the national gathering and meet him, uh, meet his team, meet the people that are working on him. He is a hero, one of the uh, pioneers in incremental development in the United States, and really someone who I have not only learned a ton from, but someone whose approach and ideas uh, we are working to try to replicate across the United States. Monty and his group at Options Real Estate, uh, they're a full-service real estate development and investment company in Southern Dallas County in Texas. They've been there for over three decades. Monty has taught me a ton. And I just want to say thank you to him and thank you to his organization for sponsoring the National Gathering. Go to strongtowns.org and get signed up. You don't want to miss out on this. It's going to be a blast. Thanks, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I want you to take a look at your bank statement next time you get it. I just want you to observe a little bit. Everybody listening to this is aware that interest rates have been rising over the last 12 to 18 months. We've had this period of high inflation, and the Federal Reserve has responded by tightening monetary policy, by taking money out of the market, allowing interest rates to rise, setting the Federal Reserve funds rate higher. But go look at your bank statement and look at your savings account. If you have a savings account, take a look at that and take a look at the rate of interest that you're being paid. I'll bet it is far lower. I think the 30-year treasury bill right now sits at something like six and a half, seven percent 7%. I don't know the exact amount. The 90-day T-bill, I think, is up to 4.5%. I bet your savings account is at 0.5. I bet it's much, much lower than that, right? 
Maybe it's inched its way up to 1% or or 2%. But I looked at mine the other day. It was, is that like 0.8 or something like that? 0.5, something. It was really, really low, very low. Now, if you have a home equity loan, which I have a, I have a small home equity loan. If you have a home equity loan, take a look at that. Mine has a, a variable rate. And my guess is that yours has a variable rate too, because that's the way most home equity loans are written. Check out your home equity loan and see what the rate has done there. I know a couple of years ago, the rate on my home equity loan was like four and a half percent. Now it's at eight and a half. It's gone up, right? The savings rate has not gone up. The home equity rate has gone up substantially. What's going on? And I think the answer to what's going on will give you the insights uh, that you need on all the things that are going on right now in the banking system. And when I say all the things, I don't mean all the things. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend that I know or understand every deep, dark nuance of the banking system. I don't even think, you know, Jay Powell knows what's going on in the banking system, let alone little old me. But I think understanding those two numbers, understanding those two things on your bank statement is going to help explain a lot of what's going on with major banks failing and seeming to blow up and, and all kinds of like crazy things going on right now in the financial system. The banking industry is very simple. There's an old adage in the banking business, and I've used it. I think it's funny. You borrow at 3%. You lend at 6% and you get out on the golf course by 3 p.m. It's the 363 approach. Banking is in its core a very simple business, or at least community banking is a very simple business. You borrow short term, right? You borrow at 3%, right? In the case of the bank statement I gave you, you borrow, you take deposits in, you essentially issue IOUs to depositors. You borrow from people, uh, you pay them 0 0.5, 0 0.8% interest. And then you turn around and lend back to people on the uh, the home equity line of credit, 8.5% interest. And, and that's how you make your money. It's not 363 in that case, it's 0.5, 8.5. And who knows if they're going out in the golf course anymore. You borrow short and you lend long. This is a long kind of held banking approach, right? And for those of you that have seen It's a Wonderful Life and the famous scene where, you know, that your money's in their house and your money's in this house, I don't have it here. We, we all kind of intuitively understand how bank runs work, right? Like the, the money's not there in the bank. But the assets are there, right? Because the assets are tied up in debt that other people owe the bank. So yes, I go to the bank and they don't have my money today, but my money's been lent out to the guy up the street who you know, put the addition on their house and they're good for it and they're going to pay it back. And so the bank sits and the bank owes me my money, but the bank also has this asset on their balance sheet, this amount of money they're supposed to get from my neighbor up the street who has a home equity loan or the person who bought the car, or the person who bought the boat, or the commercial real estate investment, or whatever it is, the bank has a portfolio of investments that are long-term, using my short-term money to pay for that. Now, I can go get my money out. If we all go get our money out, it doesn't work, right? We get that, like that makes sense. That's not what I wanna talk about today, and that's actually not what happened 
with Silicon Valley Bank. It's not what happened with Silvergate. It's not, it's not what happened with the banks that are failing. And it's not the thing that is putting pressure on other banks today. It's not a bank run in the classical, you know, it's a wonderful life sense. It's something very, very different. Interest rate risk is one of these things that banks try to hedge. But in recent times, and I'm going to talk in a little bit about zero interest rates, and I've said on the show before in the past how zero interest rates are one of these gravity-distorting kind of things. Financial markets have a gravity to them, uh, certain forces. You know, Adam Smith called it an invisible hand, what have you. These, these moderating forces that keep excesses in check, zero interest rate policy just distorts gravity. It distorts those forces. It just changes everything in a way that is, I mean, distorting undersells it, right? It, it creates all these, uh, Nassim Taleb, you know, called it tumors in the system. And I think that's a good way to think about it. Let me make sure that we're all on the same page about interest rate risk, because it's one of those subtle things that uh, if you don't grasp how markets work, if you don't grasp how bonds work and interest rates work, and again, I'm not going to pretend I know everything about this topic, but I know enough to recognize what's going on. Let's say that you go out and buy a $100 savings bond. And let's say it's a it's a 10-year bond, right? So you're going to go out and buy a, a 10-year bond. You're going to put $100 in, and it's paying you 5%. So what that means is that every year you will get $5. And at the end of 10 years, you will get $5 in the 10th year and you will get your $100 back. The math of my brain is not adding that, you know, 50, you'll get $150, right, over 10 years. So we look at that and we, we understand, you know, that return, that's pretty simple math, right? Let's say that you go get that bond today and then tomorrow, interest rates go up to 10%. So someone who walks into the bank and gets the exact same bond, gives $100 and says, I'll take the 10-year savings bond, they are not getting 5%. They are getting 10%. They're getting double what you're getting. So every year for the next 10 years, they will get $10 a year. And then at the end, at 10, at 10 years, they will get the $10 that year and they'll get their $100 back. Now think about what you're both going to get. You're, you're one day apart, right? So essentially like the term is the same. One of you is going to get $150. That's the 5%. And one of you is going to get $200. That's the 10% return, right? So it's a $50 difference one to the other. Let's say on the third day, you both wind up in financial problems. Oh my gosh, something bad happened. And... I need money. I need cash. And so you walk out and you say, I want to sell this bond. I'm going to sell this bond on the market and I want to get money for my $100 savings bond. How much money are you going to ask for that $100 savings bond? Well, if, if you're the person who bought yours on the second day and you've got yours at 10%, you can pretty much ask for $100 for your bond, right? Because that's how much it's worth. Sure, it'll pay 200 over the next decade, but I can walk to the bank and I can get my own uh, savings bond at $100 
and it'll pay 200 over the next 10 years, right? So, so buying it from you, buying it from the bank, same amount of money. Let's say you take a tiny haircut because, you know, you don't have as liquid a market as the bank does, but you're basically going to sell it for close to par, right? Close to a hundred dollars. But let's look at that person who's got the 5% interest rate bond. They're selling a bond and they're looking at you and they're saying, well, you can go to the bank, right? And you can get one that will pay 10% or I'll sell you mine that only pays 5%. Can you sell that for $100? Can you get your $100 back? No, no, nowhere close to that, right? You're going to take some amount less than and significantly less than $100 in order to sell that bond. Now, if you kept it the entire 10 years, you'd get $150 total, right? Like that's what it's worth over 10 years. But if you had to sell it today, you're going to get much, much less than the $100 you put into it because it's attached to a lower interest rate and interest rates are now much, much higher. Before the Great Depression, banks could not take this kind of interest rate risk, right? And and even today, they don't in most loans. Local banks don't take interest rate risk like this. Because when you borrow short, and when depositors put money on account, you are borrowing from depositors, right? You're borrowing short. They can come in at any time and demand their money back. When you borrow short and you lend long, interest rate risk becomes a big deal. Because as soon as markets start to shift, as soon as interest rates start to change, you will either find yourself very quickly in an advantageous position. In other words, you've got a bunch of long-term high rate things locked in and interest rates are going down. All of a sudden, your stuff is worth a lot, a lot more than what you paid for it. Or the opposite, as interest rates go up, you're locked in on these long-term things at low rates. All of a sudden, nobody wants your stuff except at a big discount. Before the Great Depression, banks would not do mortgages that were more than five years. It was pretty typical. You could maybe see a seven-year or something a little bit longer than that for very strange situations. But these were banks that were requiring 50% down, right? And then they were saying, but we, you know, we'll write you a five-year loan. By the way, interest only, no amortization, no paying off that loan. It was just going to be interest only for the next five years. And then when that loan came due, you had a big balloon payment. This is part of the reason why when property values started to drop in the Great Depression, even people who could make their payments were starting to get kicked out of their houses. As those mortgages were reset and those balloons would come due, banks were asking for more equity, more money down, and people just didn't have it. So even though they could make the payments, they were getting kicked out of their houses. This is a downward spiral that we saw in housing prices in the Great Depression and saw again in 2008. In the Great Depression, we created the financial conditions in uh, providing mortgage insurance uh, through the FHA, uh, creating a secondary market with Fannie Mae, where we allowed banks to issue 30-year mortgages, something that was unprecedented, something a, a bank could never do. A bank could never take that long of an interest rate risk. But they could do it starting in the Great Depression because uh, the federal government would insure the, uh, in, in a sense, the, the the gap in what the bank required for a down payment and what people could actually make. The FHA would insure the mortgage. Uh, 
And then Fannie Mae, if your mortgage met all the requirements for quote unquote, a good loan, right? If it qualified, uh, the FHA would buy that mortgage from you. If you got in financial distress, if you needed cash, or if you just wanted to make more loans, a uh, local bank could unload that product onto uh, Fannie Mae at par, right? Not, not at a discount, at par. This was a revolution in how we did home mortgages and how we financed houses, but it also changed the nature of local banks. Banks today borrow short, that's deposits. They lend long, but that long lending is no longer mortgages. It's no longer these five-year balloon type products. That just doesn't happen. When we look at local banks, what we see is that they lend long by doing things like auto loans, consumer loans, commercial real estate loans, and, and not in large bulk, right? But like I used to office in a bank and would chat with them about their portfolio. And they were involved in all kinds of commercial real estate transactions, but they were always the subordinate partner on that deal. So someone would finance $5 million and they would come in and do the last half million, right? Um, they also took the losses first. They got the most return on that. Um, but they were a kind of a junior partner in that, largely because they couldn't take the long-term risk, right? They had to write shorter-term notes. There was no uh, way for them to hold on their books these longer-term notes. Home equity loans are one of those things that local banks like to do today and, and spend a lot of time and effort and energy doing, again, because they're shorter-term notes. I said earlier that 0% interest rates were like a, a distortion of gravity. Nassim Taleb and the tumor analogy, the idea that when you take gravity out of the system, all these kind of weird things happen. I want to give you an example so that you can get your minds wrapped around what, what I'm talking about. Because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff being revealed right now. There's a lot of stuff that you know, I, I could only imagine about or pretend I knew something about that now as interest rates go up are starting to be revealed. Silicon Valley Bank was one and some of the kind of crazier things that they were doing. Things that in different times didn't seem as crazy, right? I think the people at Silicon Valley Bank would say they were very prudent. Um, I disagree. Ultimately, the market to an extent disagreed. But let me give you an example that I think we can all get our minds wrapped around. Here in, in my hometown, back in 2005, 2006, somewhere in that range, um, there was a big strip mall that was built kind of out on the highway, right? Um, actually in the neighboring city of Baxter. I, I live in Brainerd, Minnesota, for those of you that didn't know that. A couple hours north of Minneapolis, St. Paul. Brainerd is the old railroad town. Baxter is the new suburb along the major highway corridor. And someone went out, I can't remember their name now. And the, you know, the, the before the housing crisis flipped, right? And they went on, they built this big strip mall. And when I say strip mall, I don't mean cheap, you know, throw up construction kind of thing. I mean, we, we had plenty of those too. This was like the kind of high end, I was going to say the Taj Mahal of strip malls. Wasn't that, wasn't that good, but it was, uh, it was pretty high quality, right? I mean, they had like log siding and 
you know, pretty big units. So you had to be a, a sizable business to move in there. It was quite a commitment of money. And after they built it, it was kind of right at the apex of when the market was at its craziest in the early 2000s. And the buildings just sat. And they were able to get the anchor tenant in. You kind of have to have the anchor tenant lined up. It was a famous Dave's to come in. You kind of have to have that lined up to get the financing because that's the kind of thing that demonstrates to the bank that you know, you're know you a serious player and you got it going on. So it's one of the check boxes that they can do. So they had famous Dave's lined up, but but really the rest of it just sat and sat there and sat there and sat there. And then of course the market turned and when you got to 2012, 2014, 2016, the building was still sitting there almost, almost completely empty. And we're talking, oh, 20 different bays in this big strip mall. I mean, this was a, a substantial, substantial investment. It started to turn around a little bit in 2018, 2019. Things started to fill up, but it was still... I would say like half vacant when we entered into the pandemic. And I remember, you know, I hadn't, I didn't go out there for quite a while. My my daughters had dance out by this place. And so I would go out there routinely. It's a few miles from my house. I have no need to go out there regularly. But during the pandemic, I, I didn't go out for a long time. Like it was many, many months I hadn't been out there. And then I drove out and being built right next to the half vacant strip mall that had sat vacant for way more than a decade was a brand new strip mall being built. And again, not a, not a little tiny, you know, toss it up, junky tin kind of thing, a real Taj Mahal of strip malls, like a double deck, two floor kind of office building, strip mallish thing right next door. I mean, literally on property just to the South, just right next door. It was astounding. It was astounding to me. Because you look at that and you're like, why? Is the market not clearly demonstrated that, you know, that th there is no market for this? That these things won't ever be rented or ever, you know, enter into the marketplace as a, as a profitable kind of thing? But that's not it, right? The idea of renting these places out at a profit was not what was motivating this to be built or you know ultimately what would make this project seem successful or not what was motivating this to be built the reason that this developer and this builder got money to build a strip mall next to a half vacant strip mall was because people needed a place to put money you see when there's zero interest rates and when inflation is even at 2%, what you have is your money sitting there losing value year after year after year. When interest rates are 4% and inflation is at 6 or 7%, you have the same effect as well. You have a net negative interest rate. And so your money loses value over time. What you witnessed in the strip mall was someone trying to do something with their money that would make a profit. And the profit wasn't going to be in renting these places out, right? Like that that would be some other tranche, some other portfolio that dealt in rental properties that would ultimately buy this. Um, this was an investment in keeping workers busy and keeping construction going and, and building out a portfolio of products. 
these investments happen all the time. And we can look at them and see like, obviously this, this makes no sense. But the reality is that when there are no other good alternatives in the marketplace, you have to turn to the bad alternative if you want to put your money to work. And there's a lot of people who need to, for various reasons, put their money to work. If you are a pension fund, and let's just take the Minnesota pension fund, if you are the public employees pension fund of Minnesota and you are 70% funded, that 70% funding assumption uh, assumes 8% annual returns. Well, if you have 0% interest rates, how are you getting 8% return? I can tell you how you're getting 8% return. You're doing something really risky. I mean, by definition, there is no safe 8% return when the safe rate is zero or near zero. There just isn't. And so you're doing something very risky, thus the strip mall next to the vacant strip mall. We can see these things all over the place. And if, if you yourself have witnessed kind of crazy investments going on, and go, what, why is it? Like, I don't get it. What's going on? You're not supposed to get it, right? It, it is not natural. It is not normal. All of us have experienced to some degree, why are housing prices so high? Like, why, why is this happening? And I am sympathetic to the narrative that we have not built enough housing and that we need to build a lot more housing and that if we built a lot more housing, it would have a positive impact on prices. Like I'm sympathetic to all that. Not just sympathetic, like I believe that that is true fundamentally. But if that's where the story ends, it's a ridiculous story, right? It's an absolute ridiculous story. Housing prices are insane because we had a decade of zero gravity in the financial markets. And money turning into tumors found their way into all kinds of sectors of the economy, particularly the one that we as a nation from top to bottom said is never going to be allowed to fail, that being the US mortgage market, that being individual homes. Of course you would invest in that if you had lots of money and, and were looking for some place to get that 8% return that you're you know, obligated to get or trying to find investors for. I want you to think about now local banks. And, and that's what I really want to focus on because I think the danger here in the current moment we're in is not that Wells Fargo is going to go bad. Although I will, for full disclosure, say that I have purchased some put options on Wells Fargo. Again, pure speculation, not pretending I'm either have A, inside information, or B, I'm very smart. Um, but it's the way that I structure my own personal savings is uh, I do, you know, small little things like that. It's not that I'm suggesting that Wells Fargo is going to collapse or Capital One or US Bank or what have you. I don't really care. I think the bigger urgency here is that local banking is under an immense amount of pressure. And if we're going to build strong towns, we actually need local banks. We actually need local banks to be really, really successful. And I would say we need local banks to assert themselves even more in the marketplace than they do right now. Local banks right now are on, they're experiencing pressure on the long side, right? The assets that they have on their balance sheet. I started this podcast talking about 
the 0% you're getting on your savings and the 8.5% you're paying on your equity loan and how that spread has widened in the last year because banks need to make money and they're not making money in other parts of their portfolio, right? Auto loans are a huge part of local bank portfolios. And, you know, you get a 48-month, a 60-month, a 72-month auto loan, that's going to be at a fixed rate. And we bought a car for my, my daughter a year ago. I paid it off pretty quick, but the interest rate was something like six and a half or seven percent. It was still really low. That, that would be way higher than that today, you know, f- far higher than that today. But had we held on to that loan, the bank would still be getting from us six and a half percent interest a year when the market rate was much, much higher. Remember, I gave you that example of the $100 savings bond. When interest rates go up and you're holding the lower rate note, what is the value of that note? It's much, much less. And so if you're a bank and you're falling short on deposits, you need cash, your assets now are worth much, much less. I'm going to talk about deposits here in a second, but stick with me. Everything on the bank's balance sheet, a local bank's balance sheet right now is under pressure, right? This interest rate pressure is real. Auto loans, consumer loans, the boat loan that you did. My goofy neighbor has like this $40,000 fish house that's, you know, part of a loan. It's just asinine thing. That thing is now worth a lot less, not just because it's a dumb investment, but because it was done at a lower interest rate. If you're the bank holding that on your balance sheet, your overall portfolio, just because of rising in interest rates, is now valued less than it was before. This is before the distress actually comes in because my stupid neighbor with the fish house, you know, is he going to be able to keep his job and make his payments? There's a lot of jobs out there, but there's a lot of stress in the job market too. What we see is that with inflation, people actually have less money at the end of the month and they're starting to default at record rates on things like auto loans and things like boat loans and ATV loans and all these other kind of quirky little things that local banks have taken on. In a good market, these things are risky. In a bad market, these things are really, really risky, potentially catastrophic. Banks have all kinds of these things on their balance sheets. And they're dropping in value even when people make the payments and people are stopping or having a difficult time making the payments. Local banks do a lot of commercial real estate loans. And we went downtown Minneapolis last month for a the state dance competition. My daughters are both in dance. And we stayed at a hotel in the Skyway. James Howard Kunzler calls these the gerbil runs in Minneapolis. I totally get it. Not my favorite feature. But being from Minnesota, you know, when it's 10 below and you leave your hotel and you can just walk through an elevated tunnel through the Skyway system, there is something a little bit luxurious about it. We were going to go eat lunch in the Skyway because that's something we routinely do uh, when we're down there. And I've not been in the Skyway for a few years, since before the pandemic. It was stunning to me. I would say 80% of the storefronts are closed. 80%. I'm sure that there's a stat that somebody has somewhere that is is different than that, but that was my eye test. That was my experience. There were no places to eat. I mean, very, very few 
we were trying to find just a coffee shop and we wound up having to walk like a mile and a half. Like everything was closed. And not only was everything closed, like there was nobody there. I mean, those two things go together, which came first. We can go back and forth. There's nobody there. There are no stores open. And this is a place that used to be just overflowing with life. I've seen this at malls. You know, we've all kind of experienced this to one degree or another, where the vacant storefront that went away in the pandemic has not come back. There have been a lot of studies about this, about commercial office space and how without the workers, you can't have the ancillary businesses that provide food and, and other things to the workers. Without that, you can't have a nightlife. Without the nightlife you have, and you know, this, this spiral downward. I, I get it, I understand. These are complex dynamics. Maybe offices will come back. I'm very skeptical. You're listening to someone who has worked from home for over 20 years now and would never go back to an office. I don't see people doing this in mass if given other options. We'll see. In a competitive job market like we have now, I don't see it being a competitive advantage to tell people you've got to come and work in an office. Unless, of course, you're right out of school, in which case I think it's a critical thing to be able to work with other people and learn from them. This is not a big selling point to most employees, especially employees with kids. So are these places ever going to open up again? Probably not the way they were. And let me make the most important insight here as it relates to banks, not at the valuations they had before. If we go back to that strip mall that was vacant for over a decade, the interesting thing about that strip mall is they had rents that on a regional level were really, really high. I said it was a Taj Mahal strip mall, so it was a really nice place. And so the rents were very, very high. And the rents had to be high because it justified the size of the commercial real estate loan they took on. If they were to lower the rates of the units, what that would actually do is value their building at a lower point. If you do commercial real estate, the value of your building is, is very different than a residence, right? Uh, residents will go out and they'll do an appraisal and they'll try to get comps and match things. Commercial real estate is none of that. I mean, I can't say none of that. There's a little bit of that. But really what you're looking at in commercial real estate is valuing it based on the rent that you can get. If I can get $1,000 a month, my place is worth X. If I can get $2,000 worth a month, my place is worth 2X. And I mean, if you have a strip mall with no tenants, I don't care if it's the nicest building out there. It might have some salvage value, but it doesn't have any value from a commercial real estate standpoint. You can put the most gorgeous building out in the middle of North Dakota, and it might be a really nice building that you put a lot of effort into, but it doesn't have any value because there's no customers. If you put the junkiest tool shed in downtown Manhattan, but they let you have it there, it'll be worth tons of money because of all the people who walk by every day. This is how commercial real estate operates. So when we look at that half vacant strip mall that had no income coming in, but still had very high rents, if you went to them and said, I want to lease one of these spaces, they would give you an absurdly high price. But what they would do is they would say, we will give you a teaser rate to get you into the building. We will give you, and I heard rumors 
of 12 months free. I heard rumors of 24 months free. I really don't know ultimately what the numbers were, but this is a very common thing to say, okay, you know, will you cut the rent in half? No, I will not cut the rent in half. But what I can do is you sign a two-year lease and I'll give you the first year free. Well, that's cutting the rent in half. No, it's not. Because cutting the rent in half would mean I would have to go to the bank the next time my balloon payment came due and I'd refinance all that. I'd have to go to the bank and I would, they would say, what, what are the rents you're getting? And I would have to say half of what we projected. And then they would say, well, your building is worth half as much. And so we will loan you half as much. And so if you want to keep this building, you're going to have to come up with a cash difference between what you owe and what it's now worth. But if you can go in and say, the rent is here, and no, we didn't cut it in half. We just gave them a teaser rate for the first year. And now the second year, they're paying the full rent. They'll say, oh, that's fantastic. Um, we will just assume that they'll keep paying that rent from now on, even though they're going to plan to move out at 12 months or at, you know, the end of the second 12 month period of time. These are the extend and pretend kind of gimmicks we play to kind of keep the system moving along. Here, here's the challenge on commercial real estate. Our ability, our capacity to extend and pretend is starting to wear thin. Because it's one thing to say we're in a down market. It's another thing to say this market is going gangbusters. It's going gangbusters so much that inflation is running wild. Um, yet I can't find any tenants to take my place at these prices. And so what you're starting to see is a little bit of slippage in price, a little bit of downward pressure. And that downward pressure is putting enormous downward pressure on local banks. Because local banks are the last in line to get paid if there's a commercial real estate default. Let me say it differently. They're the first in line to take a hit if the valuations drop in commercial real estate. They are the least secure of all the lenders. I'm walking through the different ways in which local banks are under pressure on the long side. They're also under tremendous pressure on the short side right? Part of why Silicon Valley Bank was experiencing so much stress is that their depositors were experiencing a lot of stress. Their depositors were largely venture capitalists and people who were funded by venture capital. And I have seen some charts, I've seen some statistics, I don't have them here to quote to you, but I think we can all appreciate that during the pandemic, during times of uncertainty following the pandemic, venture capital money has flowed less freely. As interest rates have started to go up, there are other safer, more secure places to generate a return. And so there's been less money, remember, tumors, right? Less money flowing into venture capital. Less money flowing into venture capital meant less money being put on deposit at Silicon Valley Bank. And so while the portfolio on the one side is dropping in value because it's a lot of long dated things that are at lower interest rates that are now experiencing downward pressure in their price, it's a lot of things that we loaned out money on uh, that now are having distress. On the depositor side, we're seeing less money come into our bank. And actually we're starting to see some outflows from the bank because these venture capital places, these, these startups, uh, need that cash. Consumers are also stressed. In periods of high inflation, we do tend to save a little bit more, but that has limits too. Um, consumer debt is at an all-time high. Credit card debt is at an all-time high. And we can look at you know the statistics about spending. 
And, you know, GDP is up. GDP is a measure of transactions in our economy. Transactions are up. When we go to a, a company like Target, uh, which is a good Minnesota company here that I actually have a little bit of stock in. When we look at Target, they announce, you know, our revenue is up, but our profits are down. People are spending more, um, but they're buying less. And what you see is that we can make the revenue number go up just by having inflation. If prices are 10% higher on everything, uh, people can actually buy less and spend more. And that's what we see happening throughout the economy. Consumers are stressed. And that means that the money that banks rely on from consumers to be in their account is stretched really, really thin. The other thing that's starting to happen now, and you, you see this a little bit with Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other banks in this ecosystem of local regional banks that are under pressure is that there's a competitive marketplace out there. At Strong Towns, we have savings. We receive sometimes money in lump sums, and then we'll keep it on a balance sheet on our bank books for a while while we spend that down. Part of our income stream is very lumpy, as you might say. What do you do with that money when it comes in? Well, you know, we would put it in savings account. We would put it in places where it was federally insured and taken care of. But if we went back 24 months, um, there weren't a lot of options for that, right? Like we were not going to get any interest and we were not willing to gamble with that money. We were not willing to invest that money in something that could go down. We have a mission, we have things we're going to do. So we needed that money to be very safe and secure. And as a result, we accepted, you know, essentially near zero interest for long periods of time on that cash. But now we don't have to do that. Now there are banks that will pay us a return to put our deposits in their bank. So if you are the bank that is kind of screwed and you find that you know, your portfolio is going down in value, but you can continue to, in a sense, kind of stiff your depositors. We can give them low amounts of money in interest and they'll keep their money here and that will help us with our spread and help us make up this difference. What if those depositors start going somewhere else? What if they look across the street and say, wow, if I move my money over there, that bank will give me 2% instead of half a percent. Oh, this bank over here will give me three and a half percent. Oh, if I lock up my money for six months, which I can do, I can get four and a half percent. All of a sudden, money starts to migrate out of these places that are already experiencing the greatest amount of stress. Local banks are under a tremendous amount of stress today. I think the systematic too-big-to-fail banks are also under a lot of stress, but it's the local ones that I'm most worried about. It's the local ones that I tend to care about and tend to find systematic and important to the, the work that we're doing here at Strong Towns. And, and the vision for America that we have, the one that is more prosperous, more bottom-up, more human scale, more driven by local needs as opposed to a different set of national priorities. I have no idea what's going to happen. I really don't. I'm kind of immersed in financial news at times. I 
started doing it a couple decades ago just so I could learn to speak the lingo. And when there were things that they were talking about that I didn't understand, I would delve into that to say like, okay, what, what am I not getting here? I still keep up with it. There's a handful of people that I follow pretty regularly. I, I try to read a little bit. Certainly when the bank failures were going on a few weeks back, I, I was kind of deeply immersed in that. And we're interested in the different takes and what was going on. So a lot of people who are predicting doom I'm not predicting doom. There's a handful of other people that are saying this was just a, a small road bump and things will go on. I'm also not predicting that. I don't think we're going to see a, a ton of bank failures, but I don't know. I watched the Federal Reserve giving banks like crazy loans to bridge whatever gaps they might have. There are people I respect who are saying, this is just smart, prudent policy, Chuck. Okay, fine. <laughs> it feels like a patch in a long like line of patches. And we all know that patches don't actually fix things, they just cover them up. I watched the Treasury Secretary a couple of weeks ago asked, are you going to guarantee all deposits like you did for Silicon Valley Bank? You know, Silicon Valley Bank, you had FDIC deposit up to $250,000. So if you have $500,000 in Silicon Valley Bank, half of that was insured by the federal government, half of it was not. And when we say insured by the federal government, what we say is that the bank, Silicon Valley Bank, was paying an insurance premium, and that premium was backing $250,000 of that $500,000. They did not pay a premium on the full half a million. But when Silicon Valley Bank failed, the FDIC stepped in and guaranteed the full half a million. And it was many, many millions more, right? Again, there's a lot of people saying, that it was a very prudent thing to do. I get it. I get the expediency of it. It's hard for me not to see the moral hazard here. Silicon Valley Bank existed because they were able to offer higher rates and more competitive, flexible, risky, you know, terms to people because they didn't have to pay for insurance on all of that extra deposits. You know, if you don't have to pay an insurance premium on $20 million, but you're fully insured for $20 million, that's a real competitive advantage for you over a bank of a much smaller size. I'm not keen on that program. I get the expediency, didn't make me happy. The question to Janet Yellen was, will you guarantee all deposits now? You guaranteed all these deposits to Silicon Valley Bank, will you guarantee everyone's deposits? What about at my little bank up the road? Will you, will you guarantee their deposits? And her answer, should alarm everybody. Her answer was, no, it's going to be up to the FDIC, and they're only going to insure full deposits of institutions that are systematically important, systematically critical. I'm going to tell you the obvious. Your local bank is not systematically important in this country. It might be important to your community. It might be important to things functioning in your place. It might be critically important to get that local business open or that downtown revived or your neighborhood kind of fixed up and moving in the right direction. But systematically, it's not important at all. And so what the Treasury Secretary did is signal to every small depositor, let's not say small depositor, let's say mid-sized depositor in a local bank, anybody with more than a quarter million dollars, you better get your money out of there and into a more secure institution. Get it into one of the five big banks in this country that are systematic, are too big to fail, 
And then we will make sure that all your deposits are backed, even if they don't have to pay the insurance to do it. So you can get the upside of having a looser portfolio with lower costs, and you can experience that with a big bank, and you get the insurance without having to pay for it. This is really dumb. A lot of people realize right away that what she said was really dumb. And I'm not saying she is dumb. Very smart people sometimes say really dumb things. I think that the Treasury Secretary and you know the Chair of the Federal Reserve are both very, very sensitive to the prospects of banks. I mean, that that is their purview. That's the thing they're sensitive to. And they're not as sensitive to other things that may be obvious to you and me, things that we're sensitive to. And so I, I do think that ultimately this will be fixed. I think we will have some system that ensures all deposits. I hope that that comes with commensurate premiums to make things equal and fair and, and competitive, but probably not, right? Probably not. In a system with real interest rates, which is kind of what we're moving to, right? Like we've had decades now with lowering interest rates, interest rates in decline, and, and we're told that that was natural and you know all this stuff. I, I never found it to be. I always found it to be an insane policy from the end of the dot-com boom to the housing boom to this everything bubble that we've been in. The whole idea that we lower interest rates at the top and then somehow say, well, the market wants lower interest rates has always just been absurd to me. When you force people out of safe investments into risky investments, you get risky investments. And so as long as interest rates stay up, I think that they're going to stay up for a long time. I think inflation is going to be with us for a long time. I think we're going to kind of grow used to four, five, six, eight percent inflation. We might freak out if it gets too high, but I think we will live with the dull pain of ongoing levels of inflation, which is really one of the only ways to kind of, I don't know, keep things moving today. But what this means is that I think things are just going to get a lot harder. That second strip mall next to the first strip mall isn't going to happen. And that means that all the people who got paid to build the second strip mall next to the first strip mall are not going to get paid to do that. The people who were floating their loan on the first strip mall are not going to be able to float that loan anymore. And ultimately, you know, you're going to see prices, you know, if this continues, prices come down. And that will, in a sec, wreck big parts of the system. There's always this tension, right? And I, I wrote about this at the end of last year, about how deflation destroys economies, but inflation destroys societies. There's this tension between, you know, the value of that Taj Mahal of strip malls going down and then that working its way through the banking system and ultimately destroying someone's portfolio and someone's business and someone's job and someone's investment and someone's savings and someone's pension. And this is what is meant by when we say deflation destroys economies. As prices fall, deflation, all of a sudden all these obligations uh, can't be met anymore and the economy starts to break. But when we say inflation destroys societies, it's this kind of disorienting sense of what is anything worth? 
What will my house be worth five years from now? What's a college education worth today? How much is this car worth? What should I do with my money? How do I stop falling behind more and more and more? And inflation has this kind of overall grinding pressure to it that ultimately drives people insane. It destroys societies. I'm going to leave you with this. I had a phone conversation today with a woman named Eve Picker. She's with an organization called Small Change. I had interviewed her on this podcast back in 2016, and she actually had me on her podcast, which was a very delightful experience. But Eve works with crowdfunding, and she's actually done the really, really hard work of going through and getting all the SEC certifications and all the things that you have to do and maintain in order to have a crowdfunding platform that can fund local real estate projects. I was skeptical back in 2016 that this would scale. I knew the challenge in front of her. I knew how hard it was to do this. She has said it was way harder than you even think, but she's got it. She's got it in place. And there are people now who are going to her with projects and people who are going to her with funding saying, we'd like to match these things up. Can you make this happen? These are things that we can do at scale. As we think about what the next version of finance needs to look like, I'm less enamored with let's create a national digital currency and let's create a, you know, a digital dollar and let's consolidate banks into just a handful of too big to fail institutions and turn them into utilities. I am very like weary of the whole process of consolidation. That seems in many ways, from the top-down perspective, inevitable and good. I don't find it either inevitable or good. In fact, I find it to be a real threat. Top-down banking is what is crowding out a lot of our most productive investments. You can have a portfolio in the millions and millions of dollars and have to allocate that capital on a Monday morning uh, into a productive investment. And you'll say, well, over here, they're building a strip mall and we've got a portfolio full of strip malls and we know what those look like. And tell us what the traffic counts are. Tell us what, you know, we can get all the metrics and line it up and do it. And we put the money, we, we, we press a button and we move the money over to that strip mall. And then we build the second strip mall next to the, the one that's half vacant. That's what top down does. It, it makes us stupid, right? It's the tumors again. I think our finance needs to get a lot more bottom up. I think Eve and the whole small change crowdfunding platform is amazing. I think it's great. I don't think it takes the place of local banks. What we actually need is a system that tilts the playing field back. If it were just level, it would be amazing. But I would like to go further than that. I would like to tilt it back to local capital. Last thought. And this is a dangerous one. I know that there's a lot of knee-jerk negativity over localism. Localism is parochial. It can be racist. It can be exclusionary. When you watch the ads from Bank of America, they will do all the right marketing things, right? When you see the Wells Fargo ad, uh, they'll make sure to have someone of every race and every identity in their ads. And they have all the programs, all the marketing, right? They do all the training, all the internal stuff. They do it in a way that from the top-down perspective feels very affirming and very comforting, right? 
I don't think these places empower neighborhoods, particularly the most vulnerable neighborhoods, particularly the most disadvantaged neighborhoods. To do that, we actually need to get local capital. We actually need to get local capital to stay locally. The best investments that we can make in our struggling neighborhoods are not going to come from grants. They're not going to come from charity or for handouts. They're not going to become by Bank of America donating, you know, 0.1% of its profits to disadvantaged neighborhoods. The way that struggling neighborhoods are going to be the best off is to keep their capital local and to allow that capital to be reinvested throughout the neighborhood and to have the efforts that people put into their place be rewarded by their neighborhoods growing wealthier and more prosperous. Those are the kind of close, tight, responsive feedback loops that not only build wealth in a community, but will get us to a nation of strong towns. And so as this whole thing unfolds, as you listen to more banks fail and more stress in the system and, 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 and more difficulties from, you know, the, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury and the Congress and the financial system and Jay Powell did this and Janet Yellen did that and the president's going to address bank stability. I just want you to keep in mind that it's the local banks. It's that ecosystem of local banks that we need to function really well. And there's really nobody today sticking up for them. I don't say nobody as in like zero people out there. There's some people doing great work. The Institute for Local Self-Reliance is doing amazing work on this, right? The inertia of the system is very top-down. And that top-down system has tumors in it today. It, it, it is, in a sense, ridden with the absent gravity-induced bad investments. It's riddled with it. And the sensitivity that you hear from the people in charge is we need to save the system. I think we need a different kind of sensitivity, one that is focused on the bottom up, one that is focused on our neighbors around us and where they're struggling, and one that helps us keep our capital local so that it can be put to work, making our town stronger and more prosperous. Thanks for listening, everybody. You take care and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. See you later. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.